0: I'm Inc. Executive Editor Diana Ransom, and you are listening to Inc. Uncensored. Today's episode, a look back at 2023. Another year is coming to a close, and man, what a year it was. There was a lot of big, big news in the business world, and I have uh, a few wonderful colleagues here to share a recap with. So first up is Editor-at-Large, Christine Dare Bryan. We have another Editor-at-Large, Bill Saparito, and Senior Editor, Tim Crino. Thank you so much for joining today.
1: Hi, Diana.
2: Happy to be here. Hello.
0: Yay. So let's kick things off with um, sort of a year in review at Inc. We rebooted Inc. Uncensored, uh, and we recast it as, you you know, myself as the host. And we had a couple of sort of a revolving cast of Inc. editors. Christine, you were on a couple of times, so thanks so much for your help with that. Oh, my pleasure. We also um, kicked off a stellar new podcast called Computer Freaks.
1: Yes, it was a great year. We kicked off Computer Freaks, which was a six-part narrative podcast series about the founding fathers of the internet, and it was based on the story of my own father, Major Joseph Hani, who ran the ARPANET from 1979 to 1981. Uh, We got some incredible reporting with some of these founding fathers and probably some of the last interviews with them which was really special, it was also fascinating to see how it resonated with our audience and beyond our audience. It became the number one history podcast on all of Apple and number 12 on overall for all Apple podcasts for a time. So it was a fantastic experience. And we also saw, which I think would be interesting for our audience, is how many young people are fascinated with the birth of the Internet. We had huge growth in young people wanting to know where the Internet we use All day, every day it came from. So it was great.
0: Wow. And how do you know that about young people being interested in it?
1: All of the data we collected. It's great with podcasts because you actually can see the demographics. You can see incredibly detailed information Uh about who is listening, who listens through. um, And that's how we learned that we have an exceptionally high younger audience.
0: So uh, we also kicked off another, we also had another stellar year for the Inc. 5000. Um, We had a huge celebration in Texas this year, and um, it was wonderful I was there. Christine, you were there. Bill, you were not there, but you were there in spirit. The number one company we talked to, um, you did the reporting on, right?
2: Yes, this was CareBridge, and it was uh, founded by two people, Brad Smith and Bill Frist.
0: Sounds familiar. He's a politician, right?
2: Well, uh, Senator Frist, you may um, know him as, but also Dr. Frist, Mm -hmm. who's a former transplant surgeon who became an entrepreneur um, and teamed up with Brad Smith.
0: He was a chauffeur. Am I wrong?
2: Well, he had taken a job driving around a political candidate, which got him introduced to lots of people and eventually got him an introduction to Frist. And he had this idea for... Uh, first a palliative care company, and then they later started Carebridge, which takes takes care of the most needy population um, in the Medicaid system. So this is a huge business and they uh, their revenues went from say, you know thousands to billions in a matter of two years. Stunning. So it's pretty stunning growth. The thing about um, this particular business, it clearly scales very quickly, and it's all – these are state-run programs, so they had to qualify in all these states, and this is where their expertise was. They could get to all the regulators in all the states, get approved, and get going, and they did that.
0: Amazing. And you should all, you know, consider this a story you should bookmark, one of the best of the year. So shifting gears here, let's uh so the way we're going to do this, we have Tim, we have Christine, we have Bill. We're going to we're basically talking about the biggest business news stories of the year and we're going to debate them because I'm not convinced about any of them, but we'll we'll see we'll see how it goes. So okay, 2023 was kind of a big year for AI, I guess. Um Tim, do you want to fill us in on what your view is on that one?
3: Sure, yeah. I mean, I think we'll look back on 2023 as the year where everything changed, one of those pivotal years, I think. It's right up there with the mass production of the automobile, the dot-com era, the widespread taking-off moment that the internet had. I think Christine could probably weigh in on that, though. (laughs) So in 2015, ChatGPT was founded, or I'm sorry, OpenAI was founded, that's the parent company of ChatGPT. And November 30th, 2022, OpenAI released ChatGPT um, and promptly everyone uh, panicked. (laughs) basically. I'm
0: pretty sure we panicked. <laughs> we,
3: everyone panicked. We
0: were like, okay, so journalism, kind of out of a job, yeah. They, right?
3: Yeah. It's something we had to think about, you right, know. is um, in the recent news.
0: I mean, you know, and, and BuzzFeed was basically laid off their staff and said, we're going to just produce AI journalism now. And, yep. you know, it was going to be puppies and, and recipes. And that obviously sent shockwaves in our industry, but in other industries too.
2: Well, you will... Um May be familiar with Sports Illustrated, which uh, was right. once a famous um, sports magazine and now <laughs> is a shadow of itself. But were basically found out to be using AI to generate copy, and um, several people were fired as a result. So Including this is the a, CEO. Right? Yes, this is a this is a big deal in our industry and many others. And for those who remember the SAG-AFTRA, you know the writers
3: and the actors strikes uh, largely came down to the question of. Basically, 2023 is the year where we figured out, where we started to figure out what are the rules around AI. You know, how do we keep safeguards in place so that society can we trust AI? Uh, in my opinion, the answer is no. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I also don't think it's as as dreary and apocalyptic as many, uh,
0: including Elon Musk,
3: including Elon Musk, fear it to be. I think with the proper safeguards in place, both legally and culturally, it can be something that makes our lives much easier. Recently, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella agreed, um, but Microsoft it should be noted is also has put invested thirteen billion dollars into ChatGPT, OpenAI, and I'm sorry, into OpenAI. Yeah, this is. I think it's going to become like a Kleenex situation. Yeah, the, going to forget where the product takes
0: over the company. Exactly. Sure.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Who does make Kleenex? Is that like a Kimberly?
2: Kimberly Clark.
0: Kimberly Clark. Yeah.
2: Poor Kimberly. No one remembers. We're getting some regulation though. Yes. From the EU. Yep. Um, because we can't do anything in this country politically at the moment. No. Well, yeah.
0: That just happened,
3: right?
2: The first guardrails have gone up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's been most of 2023 in
3: the making. I mean, uh, April 2023 is when ChatGPT4 was released.
0: And this is the one that's not, like, wrong all the time, This right? is the
3: one that's it's the pro product, yeah. yeah. Um, it's more sophisticated. It has an updated brain, basically. It's been... Actually, as recently as September 2023, it has data up to that point now. But in April, it was the most advanced product, more or less, on the consumer market. Right, because the
0: prior version only had data up until 2021, right? Exactly. So what are the business applications for this that you're seeing?
3: There are many, um, not all of them good ones. Right. But I think what I've seen at Inc., um, what's come across my desk, is that there's some very specific use cases right now that won't get you in too much trouble that I think are okay to move ahead with. So, so like
0: marketing copy, marketing
3: copy, right? Like, so any marketer, or creative can tell you, like, staring at a blank page is very daunting. Mm-hmm. Um, so ChatGPT, we've seen a lot of companies use it as a way to just brainstorm uh, ideas, uh, generate some 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 frameworks for content that can then be edited into something more appropriate for their company. Um, we've seen uh, we did a great story on. Using AI in the customer service field, so a lot of people, a lot of people speculated that you know AI would be a great way to replace customer service. But anyone who's chatted, um, you know, online with a a uh, internet you a know, bot, ver-
0: like a chatbot, yeah, thing, a chatbot,
3: yeah. thank you, like a customer service chatbot, knows that it's not the most elegant or satisfying experience.
0: I've actually been sort of impressed, and I don't know if these are AI. Chatbot things that I've experienced, but sometimes I'm I'm impressed by the interaction.
3: So that's that's one of the things we found is there are ways that um, generative AI, so that's the technology that you know underpins ChatGPT and OpenAI. It can enhance those chatbots. It can make them a little more brainy, a little more useful. Especially if you plug them into your uh, your company's database or you train them specifically on your company's database, they can provide a better experience. But what we found, I think the conclusion we've come to is that the best use case for AI, both in customer service and maybe across the board at this point, is using it to superpower uh, to, just to like charge up the employees you already have, right? Like everyone gets an intern with Chat GPT. Um, you you know, get an intern. You get an you intern. You get an intern. <laughs> Everybody gets an intern. Check under your seats. You got an intern.
0: Right. The co pilot idea.
3: Yeah, the idea that, you know, as humans, like we have certain advantages. That AI doesn't have, you know, we also share certain similarities. Apparently, ChatGPT started to get lazy.
0: <laughs> I did um, see that.
3: But if you think about it, it's like, you know, humans um, should spend their time doing more creative, more like abstract thinking um, or just engaging with, you know, maybe the customer because that's that's a valuable human-to-human interaction. Let AI in general do things. What a lot of customer service agents are doing is using... Generative AI tools to look up information in the background or handle more routine tasks, right? Like if it's just a simple matter of issuing a refund or a return, you know, generative AI can handle that. If your tea kettle spilled and injured someone, like that's something a human should handle. So, generative AI is a way of, they can handle the more mundane tasks and uh, humans can use them to basically. Yeah, as interns.
0: What's the dark story? Like, when are we getting to the point where we need to worry?
3: Well, I think to Bill's point earlier, those worries are already there. Um, Mm -hmm. Almost as soon as as OpenAI was released, several European governments um, kind of put a ban on it and said, you can't use it because first you need to prove that you can protect Mm -hmm. uh, the privacy of our citizens.
0: Like an oh shit button, right? Yeah. Yeah.
3: And that's the beginning of the oh shit, right? Is like we... We're playing around with the technology that we, we don't necessarily understand how it thinks, how it makes decisions. Um, and we're it's kind of plugging it into the Internet. I mean, we've all seen the movies. So <laughs> there's 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 definitely use cases where something that makes decisions that we don't understand could make unfair decisions, whether that's in insurance or...
0: So that's generative AI. But what about general artificial intelligence? We're still a few years out from that. Talk about that one for a second. It's like when the machine is thinking.
3: Yeah, well, it kind of depends on what you define as thinking. I mean, consciousness is still something that we don't even understand how the brain does it. So,
0: Oh, I'm so glad we're building this technology that we don't fully understand. Um, So speaking of the people who build it, uh, I mean, Sam Altman basically broke the Internet. I mean, he didn't mean to, right? He got pushed out of his company, but clearly that was a a bad situation. (laughs) What happened?
3: It was an interesting situation, I think. So on the weekend of, it was a few weekends ago... Mm -hmm. I think it's, yeah, the Friday before Thanksgiving. That's right, because we, there's a, there's a few things going on. The news hit that uh, Sam Altman had been forced out as CEO of OpenAI by his board. Uh, allegedly, it was over basically a debate on how to put proper guardrails in place,
0: or that he wasn't being forthcoming enough.
3: That he wasn't being forthcoming with his board, but also it, it appears that there may have been a philosophical debate within the company and within the board over basically this the speed at which
2: AI is being developed. And also the nonprofit versus the profit oh, right. side right. of this entity. How it's entity structured. And yeah. how it was structured and whether one Bill, was getting priority. what is priority. that? How is
0: it structured? It started as a nonprofit.
2: It starts as a nonprofit, and then it forms a for-profit version, and, and this sort of gets people upset, right?
0: Right, because the nonprofit still owns the for-profit right. company. Right, and
2: at one point... Altman it says, well, we're risking the profit portion of this outfit, and the board member responds, well, that's okay. We're not here for that. Mm-hmm. So here's a, a basic disconnect between a board and its its chief executive.
0: Meanwhile, Microsoft is its biggest investor.
3: Right, I mean, exactly. And they've got a lot to lose. Right. So within the, within the span of, I believe it was 24 hours, it was announced or came to light that Microsoft's CEO, Satya Nadella, um, had offered to hire Sam Altman and... And everyone else. And everyone else. (laughs) Yeah, the entire company, exactly. Anyone who wanted to come with him. Um, And they were going to build him an AI lab within Microsoft. So I think it's a pretty clear connection there that that kind of prompted the board, well, what's left of the board, a condition of his return. So the the negotiations were ongoing about him coming back to OpenAI over that weekend. And um,
0: our reporters were exhausted. <laughs> our reporters
3: were exhausted. Yeah, yeah, they should. They could have used a chatbot to help them with all that. But yeah, I mean, his a condition of his return uh, was that the board members who were in opposition to him were no longer on the board, um, and that's what happened. So.
1: I found it amazing that Satya Nadella didn't know this was coming. Like it was uh, in terms of leadership and learning from a leadership role, he they were so autonomous that this just happened, and the press found out the same time the head of Microsoft found out.
3: Yeah, I think it reflects a bigger problem in AI development, which is that a lot of people understand that it's uh, it could be a giant money generator, but don't quite understand how it how it works. Um, and they don't ask a lot of questions because they're a lot like, of
0: transparency.
3: Yeah, it's the classic disconnect between the boardroom and the engineers, right? Like if you don't understand how your product works, you just trust that the people who do or have the best interests of the company at heart. But that's not the only industry that has that problem.
0: So now Sam Altman's back in the saddle at OpenAI. He is. and the And no one's concerned about this, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess it is what it is. Any sort of closing thoughts on AI? There,
3: I mean, I think there's just, there's just a lot. A lot has happened. I think, um, I think our advice has been just use AI to supercharge your employees. It doesn't have to be a threat, right? Like four day work week has been something we were talking about before. So, and and Microsoft's, I, I keep talking about Microsoft, but um, <laughs> well, it's their twelve billion. Yeah, It's yeah. powering they have a lot in there. But you know, we don't have to be afraid of AI, but. Maybe we should be a little afraid of Sam Altman. But, mm-hmm. um, I'm okay know. with that. Yeah. I'm okay with being <laughs> yeah. afraid of
0: Sam Altman.
1: One other thing that I feel like Inc. covered that we did not see in the press as much was when we were covering the um, presidential candidates. Mm-hmm. We had Doug Burgum come into the office here, and he talked about how when we have labor shortages right now, something we've all been struggling with this year— Maybe AI is going to fill in all those government jobs, like maybe AI can really kind of reshape it. So it's just something to keep an eye on as we're heading into an election season, how AI will play out in addressing labor issues. Yeah. And like,
0: what's Trump's view on that? One can only imagine.
1: Yes. Now that the field is narrowing and we have fewer candidates, I think this is going to be and we're going to be getting beyond just a few core issues. We're going to definitely have more discussions about that. Absolutely. It's going to remain a topic.
2: Although AI can't hammer a nail or pick up tomato which no. is
1: a <laughs> yes or actually um smell food when we're talking about in the food space actually i think it can but it isn't developed far enough i okay. went back into the reporting like uh-huh. is ai going to help smell my dinner tonight or my holiday dinner no it's mm-hmm. not it's not a near term threat and actually with computer freaks there's some academics in china who tried to do similar reporting in terms of collecting this audio And because we're dealing with an aging population and the kind of nuances of their reporting, we found that we were able to do many things that robots can't do as journalists. That just gives us a little leeway in our jobs. right, I'm glad.
0: Our jobs are safe for now. So another huge story this year, which took place in around, you know, early March, uh, was the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Christine, you were on an airplane just like I was heading down to South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. Uh, Give us us sort of the play-by-play. How did it go down?
1: Yes. Okay. So the Diana Christine experience with SVB was a crazy one because Mm -hmm. as we were flying to Texas, And we landed in Texas. Everyone had these incredibly wide eyes. And I was like, what's going on? And um, as we were at Founders House doing our panels, we learned that Silicon Valley Bank was basically shutting its doors. It was collapsing. And the reason this matters is because so much of our Inc. audience relies heavily on Silicon Valley Bank. That SVB was the bank that um, made lending possible for so, so many small businesses when, as we know, the lending markets can be really challenging to work with if you are an entrepreneur just trying to get a loan, open up a bank account.
0: Right, right. They were very uh, empathetic
1: toward uh, founders over the years. So Yes, as we learned to a fault, but for our audience.
2: <laughs> Having talked to a, an SVB banker um, right after this, um, he said th- that we were good at extending the runway. Mm-hmm. Right? This is the Wait, term you used. Through venture uh, debt, right? Yeah. yeah.
1: Yes, extending the runway, which is what has fueled so many businesses, but also really led to its demise. So that was on the Friday that all of these— Startups were landing in Texas and meeting with their um, investors over that weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, by Saturday night, there was um, we were also dealing with Signature Bank, and um, entrepreneurs were saying, like, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to my own bank. Right, right. There was a bank run. I mean, yeah, there was a bank run happening and we were in the center of it. So mm -hmm. um, it was a fascinating time. By Monday morning, when we had our panel discussion about the future of lending, the incredibly noisy, raucous South by Southwest, was so quiet you could hear a pin drop. And when we had a panel discussion about the future of lending, the entire room was packed. I think people were lined up down the street trying to get in. And we had one venture capitalist tell us that um, that was on the 13th of March. Mm -hmm. She didn't know if I believe 40 of her companies would be able to make payroll on the 15th. So it was cataclysmic for Inc., readers, the ink audience, and um, it was just a fascinating thing to watch. Right. And Bill, you edited a couple of SVB
0: stories where, you know, basically our reporters went to the business owners and talked to them like, okay, this is your whole payroll. This is everything that you have. What are you doing?
2: Well, th- first of all, there was a rush to pull money out. I mean, everybody hit the exit button as quickly as they can and this is what this is a logical thing to do in a bank run by the way mm-hmm. the first people who get out you know are whole and the latecomers often are stuck now ultimately the federal reserve bails everyone out right that was yeah, but not i
0: didn't know that was nobody
2: happen. knew that at the time so people were frantically trying to move money out of that out of that bank and in that sense, it was history repeating itself because this has happened, you know, you can roll it back into the 19th century, bank run after bank run, 1907 again, 1913. I mean, it just, it's a repeat, and despite all the controls we have, it still well, doesn't work that this, way. The this interesting
0: just, thing about it is that the FDIC was created for this very reason, but— uh, these people had so much money in this one institution yes. the FDIC didn't actually – it didn't matter if you have, you know, $250,000 in the bank and that's actually covered. They had millions. Well,
2: because they had – they did all their banking there, right. right? So it it wasn't that you got a loan there or you were – you know, your your payroll is being run through there. It was – you know, soup to nuts was going through that bank. So that's what caught a lot of people.
0: So when it, when it went, you know, basically belly up, you know, everybody was figuring out, OK, so how do I move my money? Yes. OK, the FDIC came through we, or the Federal Reserve came through. We got we got we were made whole. And then what, what did they learn from that? Like, what did they do next?
2: Well, diversify, number yeah. one. Mm-hmm. But this is a unique bank in that situation. I mean, most most people don't bank that way. Right. Most companies don't bank that way. They're
0: they're more conservative. Right. Of course. Yeah. Which
2: they ought to be. And. Most banks don't operate that way. Remember that this is a bank that was trying to play fast and loose with the regulators. They didn't, you know, they kept their assets to below $250 billion, which put them in a different category. So, and then they fundamentally mismanaged duration. Their bond portfolio left them exposed. They had to announce, you know, a multi-billion dollar loss, but they said, we're going to raise funds. And when you do that, when you say you need money, that's a signal that you're in trouble, obviously. And it gave the – they thought it would inspire confidence. It did the opposite. Again, this has happened before. It was just dumb.
0: Yeah, it's happened before, but it's still shocking every time.
1: And it also brings up the issue of the fact that, like, meeting the banking needs of entrepreneurs and small business owners. I mean, this is why we have kind of underbanking happening with – the pizzeria owner, underbanking happening with, you know, b- because it is very difficult if you are just trying to open a bank account well, and also you have... a startup.
0: It's like the yes. pizzeria owner can do it because they have like two or three years of track record. The startup that's brand new doesn't have that track record. So they'd go to the Silicon Valley bank types because they, underst- quote unquote, understand startups. When you don't have that, when you just have like the B of As of the world... They don't get that. And they just – they extend you a loan based on your track record. And if you don't have one, you're out of luck. What I thought was really interesting with the whole SVB situation was the idea of venture debt and how um, the bank really served a major role in extending venture debt to these startups. So basically you, you, know, you raise – $14 million from Andreessen Horowitz or whatever. And on the back of that fundraise, you can extend the the bank itself would lend you, you know, a couple more million. So a lot of times startups just kind of keep that in their little piggy bank for my, my, my crazy, oh my God moment. So they had, they were able to sort of repay the venture debt and um, to make, to basically transition to the new bank. But a lot of A lot of the startups or the companies that we we talked to were not able to be made whole with the venture debt situation. So they they might have had the money from Andreessen, but they didn't have the extension that they got from SVB. So it was actually pretty significant for our sort of ecosystem of startups.
1: Yes. And for our ecosystem, it's still reverberating. It wasn't just a March story. I mean, heading into the holidays, I do know of companies that have been able to hold on till now, but they are in the process of filing for bankruptcy. This is something we've talked about, your year-end bankruptcy. All which is kind of coming out of March. And I feel like it's a story that's been forgotten compared to, and I'm going to compete with AI here. That's (laughs) what we're here for. But it's a story, it's a lingering problem with the lending markets that we're still dealing with today for entrepreneurs.
0: Amazing. Uh, Well, speaking of money and entrepreneurs, crypto had a bit of a winter this year.
2: The crypto winter went to Crypto (laughs) Arctic, two big criminal cases this year with um, Sam Bankman-Fried and uh, the failure of FTX. And then later, Binance's uh, founder at Peng Zhao, uh, CZ, as he was known, pleads guilty to DOJ charges of basically being a, a cash laundromat and not following any banking rules.
0: Which is funny because he's the one who called out SBF.
2: Yeah, he is the one who basically told the world that the tokens that FTX had on his balance sheet were not worth anything. Mm. And he had held some of them too. Once he said he was selling them, then a run on FTX took place. So it's a a, a different version of the bank run. But um, they were out of business and had everybody scrambling to find the $8 billion dollars that they had borrowed from their customers.
0: So let's step back for a second. How did this story come to you?
2: Well, this is collateral damage, right? So um, two years ago, a company called BlockFi was our fastest-growing company on the Inc. 5000. Um, they were in decent shape. They hit Crypto Winter, the first Crypto one <laughs> won before this one. <laughs> you know, they had modeled it out. They thought they were in good shape. It turns out that they had some bad collateral They went looking for a loan, and guess who provided it? Sam Bankman Freed. Yeah. Yeah. Then um, Freed, on the other hand, takes customer money from BlockFi as a loan, and this is what takes BlockFi down because they were given a statement saying, oh, FTX's balance sheet is in fine shape. It wasn't. So they are part of the collateral damage.
0: Okay. So our number one fastest-growing company of the year basically went belly up Within right two when years. we were announcing yeah. Yeah. that they were the fastest-growing. Right. Incredible. And it's still reverberating, like the SVB situation, you know. it's still there's You
2: know, everyone is still looking for money, right, trying to recover funds. And our subject, BlockFi, was never, you know, involved in a um, criminal way with, with FDX. They basically become creditors who go out of business because of it. But this is a risk that it's a funny thing. When you think about blockchain, which is the technology behind all this, it's called a trustless system. And it turns out
0: you don't need to trust it. It's just ingrained
2: because all the users make certain that all the deals are in view of everyone. But what you can't trust, it turns out, are some of the people operating within it. So this is this is an ironic year. But it's also possibly the year where the regulators win. So CZ was trying to avoid the regulators, and it turns out you can't.
0: Well, SPF also invited them, right? He was he was like, "Hey, yes, come here Yeah, come and look at on in.
2: Now the real winner here is Coinbase, all right? Which we um, which was a company of the year for Inc. about five years ago, and their view is that we want the regulators. We are going to tie up with them. We want them here. We want them to provide that guarantee to investors, customers, mm-hmm. and their stock price shot up 50% in view of all this because they are the safety valve now.
0: I was personally speaking with the CEO of Betterment at Collision that same year, they're like earlier in the year when the news broke that FTX was basically caught, and um, well, caught in this sort of downward spiral. The company had just acquired a crypto company and I'm sitting there on stage with the CEO going like, so that was a bad move, you know? <laughs> I mean, we were still figuring it out. And in the end, it might end up being a good move. How are how are crypto companies these days? Like, how are startups in the crypto space thinking? Well,
2: it's the space is still active. I mean, blockchain is not going away. It's quite useful. Crypto is not going away. It's maybe quite useful. We don't really know yet. But... Would you rather hold Argentinian pesos or crypto? I mean, you might wanna hold crypto, right?
0: Well, especially Bitcoin, right? It's back, baby.
2: Bitcoin, <laughs> you know, cratered at 13,000 bucks. It was hit 45,000 recently, so it's real. And, you know, you can get people to make all kinds of pie in the sky estimates as to where it's going, but it's rallied and, and, and crypto is, is here forever.
0: Oh, really? Would you say that to Nouriel Rabini?
2: I would, yes. <laughs>
0: Okay. All right, on a lighter note, let's talk about Taylor Swift. Yay. Definitely. Yay. I mean, <laughs> she stole the show. I mean, forget AI, forget Sam Altman. It was Taylor Swift's year, no? I mean, I know somebody who would agree with that statement. I, Tim. I
3: think it was I think it was a very good year for her. Okay. Um it's been a very good
0: uh And she's thirty three.
3: She's close to my age. I mean she's look, she's worth a billion dollars. She is if not the entrepreneur of the year, she's certainly one of the, you know, most powerful entrepreneurs of the year. I think as I think her strengths that we've definitely seen on display with the Ares Tour, um, is like she really knows how to control every means of production. She aside from the ticketmaster debacle, which I think we'll probably sort see. Sort of out of
0: her hands.
3: Sort of out of her hands because they do have, you know, it's come to late, they do have a monopoly to almost on um Ticket sales, uh-huh. but from there, I mean, you know, she she did a direct deal straight to AMC of her, uh, you know, a, a movie version of her concert series, which made her a lot of money and AMC a lot of money.
0: The interesting thing about that, in my in my sort of reading of of her and her career so far, was that she's sort of done a good job cutting out the middleman, and that was an example of her cutting out the middleman, right?
3: Yeah, it was the latest in a long line of examples. I mean, she also. Um, when her recording masters are basically like the original copy of a studio album. And that's oversimplifying, but, <laughs> but it's fine. for all intents and purposes. So um, her first few albums were with a company that was effectively sold to Scooter Braun, who's a...
0: Sort of her nemesis.
3: Well, in a, in a way, yes. This is all very complicated because... So, Kanye
0: West made that like mean video about her and yeah. it wasn't true. And then Kim Kardashian made a sort of secretive recording about how they were in on it together. Yeah. Sorry, I really don't know much about this. So you
3: kind of bring up the point that I think is, is key here, which is, so when I say controls all the means of productions, like a production, like, of production, she... So this is back in 2016, the whole Kanye thing. They've been in each other's orbit for more than a decade at this point. Um, Famously, he kind of interrupted her acceptance speech at at an award ceremony and sort of set off a bit of of bad blood, you might say. (laughs) In 2016, yes, there was this beef with Kanye, and he basically recorded a song that had some vulgar lyrics in it that he alleged that she agreed to. And There was an edit made by his at-the-time partner, Kim Kardashian, that made it seem as though she had agreed via phone call. Um, she did not and from there she went into kind of like stealth mode I guess you could say and then came back with an album that really I think put her in ownership of, of the narrative and she was like yeah the theme of the album was kind of just like you can say whatever you want but at the end of the day like karma will get you.
0: In that the Time Magazine article, she had a great quote where she was like, "I know sort of the few truths in life. It's like even when you're down, just keep producing."
3: She, did, yeah, I think, and that, and you know, the the Time article is very uh, illuminating when it came to how she thinks about branding. So mm-hmm. she started off as a country artist, and then she kind of lost her luster a bit, um, both because of the Kanye stuff and just you know country music in general. It didn't really work for her anymore. And as a result, she said that the studio that she was working with was looking to get rid of her. And so she said, and this is where I think there's a really great lesson for for businesses here, but she said, it's harder to hit a moving target. She's like, so I kept changing myself. I kept trying to do different things, experimenting, until you know I found some niches that I fit in. And-
0: But it's obviously worked out. I mean, remember when Dylan went electric and everybody hated it, or the folk people hated it?
2: I don't remember when Bob Dylan went electric. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, thank back in you. the old days.
0: I don't either, but I w- I'm aware of it.
2: Well, as as someone who covers macroeconomics, what what impresses me about Taylor Swift is that she changed the GDP of Denmark. I think with with her tour, she actually made it wobble. Yeah, she's she's actually the, it's
3: called the Taylor effect. She um she boosts the local economies of of all of the mm-hmm. the. Locales where she where she performs for the right, air and that, store.
0: That's what we've sort of covered. I think you know we've covered the business boost these folks got from you know just like the glitter, like the glam yeah. clothing yeah. that people wear when they actually attend her events.
3: Yeah, she drove up sales five hundred percent at a craft store because all of her. Uh, her fans are wearing, are making friendship bracelets to go. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. People yes. blew through their inventory. I mean, and I also love that we are looking at an industry, the music industry, that's gone through radical transformation. It feel, felt like it was almost like eradicated that, you know, you can't make any money in music. And she's defied that. Yes. And she's defied those odds. And she's shown that with the right product and, re, you know, rebranding and reinvention, you can still thrive in these industries. The other
3: thing that I think we have forgotten about, because it happened specifically, several years ago is she changed the way the streaming industry works. I mean, she wrote an open letter to Apple, basically saying that artists needed to have more control of of their music and they needed to receive profits from it. And that basically the deal wasn't fair. She changed the streaming business model. So I think she's a great example of someone who really understands how to control a narrative. Yeah. She's
1: also wonderful at being underestimated. Um, I have a good friend at another business publication who has been covering Taylor Swift for years and years because none of her editors thought that taylor swift was worth covering Mm -hmm. until now and so she's gone to all the because there was a complete underestimation of taylor swift which i think is such a gift and skill of being an entrepreneur to be underestimated
3: yeah being the underdog is a classic entrepreneurial skill
0: certainly worked for her okay well thank you so much for being here this has been such a delight to go over these biggest business news stories with you thanks for recapping 2023 with
3: me we have to pick a winner Oh, wait, do we? No.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But before we go, uh, we wanted to share some New Year's resolutions with you from the staff here at Inc. My New Year's resolution is to get through my candle collection without
1: buying more candles. New year, new me.
2: To learn a new language.
1: To ideally every month do a project that I'm objectively bad at, but do it anyway.
2: Be more active with my creative ambitions and creative projects. My last year's New Year's resolution was to go to the dentist. My 2024 New Year's resolution is to go to the dentist because I didn't go last year.
0: The bravery. The bravery of admitting. <laughs> new year, new week.
2: To say no more. Sometimes
3: the best thing you can do for your job and your coworkers is to say, no, I can't do that and not disappoint people and protect your peace. To get back into running. To actually do my expense reports on time so that I don't have a big pile of receipts that keeps growing that's sitting on my desk which is how I'm ending 2023. In
2: 2023, I deactivated my last social media account. In 2024, my resolution is to stay off of social media. My new year's resolution is inspired by uh, Shonda Rhimes, who said yes to everything for a year and how it changed her. I'm going to consume only media that I hate and see how it changes me as a person. And my New Year's
3: resolution is to murder a podcast producer. Oh, God. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. To try and be outside within the first 30 minutes of waking up and actually see the sunshine.
0: That's a terrific resolution. Thank you. New Year, New me.
1: To stop texting my ex-situationship when I'm sad because 2024 is a year of growth to finally finish my book. I keep saying this is going to be the year, but this time I want it to be true. To, like, finally nail
0: Fermenting Water kefir and Heal My Gut. This is a great... Please give
1: applause...